Hey everyone, this is David from the iFloat Radio Podcast, talking to you here from iFloat in Westport, Connecticut. And I am happy to let you know that we have a very special podcast today. The podcast will be split into two sections. The first is going to be an interview with Ashkan from Floaton in Portland, Oregon. He came out to the East Coast this week to do book readings and talk to people about the republishing of the original version of John Lilly's programming and metaprogramming in the human biocomputer. And it's really exciting to have him here today to talk about that book because here at iFloat we teach courses on programming and metaprogramming. We provide introductory courses and, and advanced courses and using John Lilly's model for how the mind works to help people make adjustments in their life. iFloat is both a flotation center and perhaps more accurately an educational center for people to understand how the mind works and how ideas travel through the mind out into the world. And having the book republished is a really exciting thing because now people don't have to purchase old copies of the book. They can get new copies of the book. And I think it also is pointing at a resurgence and an interest in the work of John Lilly, which is exciting from the point of view of, of floating, because it means that more people are interested in floating. But it also is indicating an, an interest in understanding and finding ways to figure out how the mind works, what's going on in a person's life, and to make adjustments so that people can be at one with themselves and in harmony with the other people in their lives. So I'm going to start off with the interview with Ashkan so we can talk about the project of, of publishing this book. And then after the interview with Ashkan, there will be a discussion with a group of people who come to iFloat, some of whom have taken our courses here, to have a discussion about Lily's work and to read some of the sections of Lily's work and talk about how we've applied that in our lives and how people here are learning how to make adjustments in their minds through floating and through the courses that we offer here at iFloat. So listen on in and enjoy the show. I'm sitting here with Ashkan from Floaton. We have a very special guest on the podcast uh, today. It's a, a trans, well, I guess not transcontinental, but it's uh, from the other side of the continent. Yeah. Uh, but he's actually sitting here. Yeah, cross-continental. Ashkan came out, and we're going to talk a little bit about why he's out on the East Coast from Portland, Oregon. Um, but the first thing I want to do is give a shout out to the flotationslocations.com. They are a sponsor of the iFloat Radio podcast and they're a really great resource for learning about floating and places to float and gaining different resources in relation to floating. So check out flotationlocations.com to learn more about floating wherever you are located. You can find a flotation center near you or at least somewhere sort of close to you. <laughs> so, but uh, I want to uh, thank you, Ashkan, for coming up to Connecticut. Yeah, absolutely. To uh, to come to iFloat, and uh, so tell me or tell us a little bit about why 
you're here. Why are you out here on the East Coast? Yeah, so so I'm, I'm living over in Portland, Oregon right now, running a float tank center over there called Float On, which uh, we've been doing for about three and a half years now. And, um, you know, as we got kind of more into floating and delving deeper and deeper into the world of the float tanks, uh, we kind of naturally just started also delving deeper into the world of John Lilly and kind of going back through his old works and, and looking back into the many publications he has out. And um, the kind of deeper we got, like, the more we were almost a little disappointed at the kind of the state of his literature. A lot of it's out of print, a lot of it is, like, really edited, a lot of it's just kind of lost in the mist of time a little bit. And so um, for many years now we've actually had this desire to see if we could kind of bring that work back out and make it more accessible to people and really kind of bring the thoughts that he had back in back in the day kind of up to light again. And um, pretty recently we actually got an opportunity to do that. We, we found John Lilly's son who was uh, the estate holder to, to the Lilly estate and um, talked to him and ended up getting the rights for programming and metaprogramming in the human biocomputer and um, just immediately began working on trying to put it out for republication. Uh, we actually started a um, publishing house to be able to put this book out. And so, um, yeah, we kind of went through the process and did research on printing books and ISBN numbers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, eventually formed this little company called Coincidence Control Publishing. And um, we actually have the whole book kind of ready to go now. On May 15th, we're doing a big book launch for it. And um, it's pretty exciting. It's actually the first time in 25 years that programming and metaprogramming is being released in its actual full, unabridged form. And so, yeah, the plan is really just to see if we can kind of blast John Lilly out there and see if uh, we can kind of spread some more just really good information about kind of the work that you've done. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, it's I in particular love it because we teach classes here on programming and metaprogramming and prior to this book being published, generally what I would do is I would send people the PDF version because I had accessed the PDF version off of Scribed maybe about six or seven years ago. And that's how I first read it because prior to you and the other folks from Floaton taking the time to publish it, it you had to purchase an, an older copy or get the, the newer version, which was was not the the full full original version, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is what you would mention. It inspired you to, to do that. So this is this is really cool. I'm excited to to have it, and and we have it out on the table right now, and people people are pretty jazzed up about it because it is a really important uh, piece of work. It's really important. Now, what has the response been from the community out in Portland, in your community, about like the publishing of the book? Um, it's been really great, actually. Like, it's it's funny when you kind of start to put your feelers out there for John Lilly, how many people just kind of pop up and come out of the woodwork who have been really inspired by Lilly and kind of have been, you know, exactly like you said, finding these like old kind of copies of his books like on the internet or through like old library sources and, and have been reading him and been really uh, enchanted in kind of what he's had to say. And are a lot under the radar until you start putting it out there that like, hey, guess what, like new things are happening with these Lily works and putting it out. And so we've gotten a lot of support from it actually. 
Um, we have a couple afterwards written for specifically our publication from uh, Glenn Perry, who like made the first commercial float tank, and Rick Doblin, the founder of Maps, and just these people who have been kind of influenced by Lily. Um, and so it's been really nice actually just talking to them and actually getting a sense of kind of the impact that he had on the world. Just out of curiosity, from a personal standpoint, like how do you see having read his work, or just in general, how do you see him having influenced you personally? in your life? Um, I mean, well, I run a float tank. (laughs) That's a pretty big one. Yeah, it's a pretty big one. My life work is devoted to something that he invented. Um, So yeah, that's had a pretty huge impact. Um, To be honest, it's really kind of fascinating to, as we've kind of gone through publishing this book, we've we've delved a lot into just kind of Lily's life in general. And uh, it's crazy. Like, he just did an incredible amount of stuff. And the things he was interested in and the things that he pursued, he pursued in times that no one else was doing that sort of work and in fact a lot of people were doing like very much this, the opposite of what he was doing like not exploring the brain and exploring the outside world and and to see someone just kind of resolute in delving as deep into these things that you're interested in as John Lee was and to actually like have a huge body of accomplishments under him um, like I think in his obituary it states that his uh <clears throat> his last physician said that John Lilly was the only person who knew he knew who um, being a metal, medical doctor was the least of his accomplishments <laughs> and so it's interesting it's interesting to see a guy who's just done so much and it's just, uh, inspiring in a lot of ways too to kind of go out there in the world and, and try to have an impact in that way yeah that, that makes a lot of sense that he was definitely a passionate person but more importantly he directed his passion to actually doing things yeah. Not just not just kind of like, you know, spinning his wheels, but he actually went out and he said, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to write this book and I'm going to invent this thing and right. I'm going to improve this thing just like he did with the flow tanks. And, and I agree that, that just the fact that he did all of these things in itself is, uh, is an inspiration. Definitely. Yeah. It's very, very determined. This is kind of what I picture John Lilly as. Like, he was really fascinated with mapping the brain and the electrical impulses and the technology didn't exist. And so... He started trying to help improve the technology, like just kind of whatever was in his way, like that became the problem that it seemed like he was going to tackle. And uh, from a personal standpoint, like that's that's something that I've been trying to kind of incorporate into my own life. And it seems like to be a very successful strategy too. Like when you do hit problems, just being like, you know what, like I'm going to fix this. Like if it doesn't exist, I'm going to make it. And it's great. It's incredible how much you can accomplish with that mindset. One of the things that someone came in recently, maybe about a month ago, he saw some of the books we have on Lily and so forth, and he had mentioned how he had uh, he had met Lily, and he made this interesting point uh, that Lily made a distinction between the the physical brain and the mind, and one of the things that I appreciate about his approach was that he was steeped in science but he also paid attention to what some would call the spiritual uh, side of things or the invisible side of things and he he really sat in the middle between science and the perhaps spiritual uh, realm philosophy or whatever and I really appreciate that because because that that's almost like where where that place of creativity and being a t- change agent is kind of reminds me of Steve Jobs a little bit because I read his book uh, in the fall and he was very much like okay there are these physical rules that people say things this has to be done but then there's this whole like realm of imagination 
and and where things can be invented and we can recreate the way things are done and i think that lily very much not only did that himself but through this book in many ways like laid out a, a, a framework or a structure for people to understand how the mind functions so that they can actually navigate that and um and be in that more creative place where they're they're actually shaping not only their own life but like the world yeah absolutely i think it's really true like i really like lily's um kind of self-defined purpose in programming and metaprogramming where he talks about uh being an explorer and Mm -hmm. like that being kind of what he's attempting to do and that there is this rigor of science and this way of doing these really controlled studies and that there is also this really unknown world out there that we don't even have the scientific tools to really quite quantify yet and that someone actually needs to be the person to start delving into that world and to exactly like create a a framework of language so that people can start discussing it and start you know blazing a path and to kind of shine a light into the unknown so that other people can follow kind of with the more rigor and the structure and actually like build the steps that you need to go down there um, but yeah, the, the importance of that first person delving into it, and whether that's through, you know, just your own subjective experience of kind of diving in there and seeing what comes up in your own brain and trying to extrapolate from there, which is seemingly a lot of kind of what Lily's most exploratory work stems from. Um, but the, the importance of that and the fact that that itself is an actual, like, valuable thing to be doing in the world I thought was really great and is, you know, is really work too. Like this language is still around and it's still being used and it did create a framework to help explore parts of the brain and the mind that had been very difficult to even really talk about before then. I agree. Yeah, the whole idea of looking at the mind as a computer and really breaking it down and, and looking at it from a neutral standpoint and not from the standpoint of it's, it's this, this, this one thing, but that it's made of all these pieces that can be described, can be identified, can be adjusted. And that's, that's a very different approach than saying, like, this is my mind and this is how it is and how it's always going to be. And yeah. it's like, well, no, there, you can look at it. You can, <laughs> you can pull up the hood of the car and maybe pull up another hood and, and yeah. go deeper and figure out, okay, this piece here maybe could be adjusted. Yeah. And, uh, and it's amazing. I mean, it's, this book is like, just within the context of itself, he already starts using these tools for helping figure out ways to adjust your behavior and the way that you're reacting to the world. And it's just so kind of immediately useful in the way that he presents it, which is really nice. Um, Yeah, and it's incredible. I mean, it it like sounds really cliche now in a lot of ways to to compare the brain to a computer because like there's just computers everywhere now and it, it kind of makes so much sense to us. But at the time, especially, like it was such a novel thought. Like it was just, I mean, he warns in the, in the introduction to the book that like, this might be difficult to read for some people because, like, even just the basic verbiage of, like, hardware and software was not in the common vernacular at the time. And, like, computers were these things that these giant businesses had or, like, governments had, and there were sizes of rooms. And, yeah, like, when you kind of even put it in its historical context, it's it's almost even more impressive that uh, he kind of developed it as far as he did. Yeah, no, I agree. Now... Before we end, I'd like you to just explain, what do you want people to do? They're going to listen to this podcast, and, and how can the people who are listening to the podcast help with this movement of, of spreading the word about programming and metaprogramming and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our goal is basically just to try to get John Lilly out there as much as possible and see if we can really kind of bring his name to light again. 
And um, specifically, the way that we're trying to do that is by having a really big book launch on May 15th, coming up really soon here, to uh, see if we can actually get this book onto the bestseller list on Amazon. Um, and ideally number one on the bestseller list, because I think that would really just help kind of bring John Lee to light for a whole like new generation of people who have probably not even heard about him. And uh, so we kind of went in with this, this really abstract goal of getting onto that bestseller list, and we started looking into it, and it turns out that it's actually pretty feasible, like, um, especially if you can just get people from kind of around the country just purchasing books all on that one exact day. Um, so that's our goal, is May 15th, we're trying to get as many people to hop on their computers and go to Amazon and purchase the book, um, and there'll be a link over from coincidencebooks.com, which is the website, and um, yeah, we're, we're just going to be like stored up in a room that day, we're calling it the day of a thousand phone calls, <laughs> we're just going to go and call absolutely everyone who's shown any interest in, in John Lilly or purchasing this book or who we're meeting on this uh, book tour that we're doing around right now and seeing if we can actually get them all to hop on their computer that day on the 15th and put it through. Um, and actually if we can get about like a thousand books sold on that day, we actually have a really decent chance of, uh, of being on that bestseller list. Well, great. Well, th well, thank you so much for taking the time, putting the effort into publishing the book. I'm really excited about it. I'm going to be using it. We'll be selling it here and, and using it and teaching and so forth. And I definitely encourage everybody who's listening to go onto Amazon on May 15th and help make this book a, a bestseller. So thank you, Ashkan, for, for coming and good yeah. luck with the rest of the, the book tour. Yes, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Ashkan from Floaton. It was really great to have him come up to iFloat to see the facility and also to talk to him about his project and the project that they've implemented in getting the rights to the book and publishing the book and so forth. And in this next section of this podcast, as I mentioned before, there will be a discussion with a group of people who sat around a table and just hashed out some ideas and about programming and metaprogramming and more specifically how they are experiencing that in their everyday life. It's a really great opportunity to see the implementation of programming and metaprogramming in a flotation center, both in terms of people's float experiences and also in terms of the courses that we offer here at iFloat. And Thank you very much. Enjoy it. And if you have any questions, you can reach us at ifloatspa.net. You can check us out and send us emails and ask any questions. So enjoy the conversation, and we look forward to seeing you at iFloat or listening to our podcast in the future. I got into all this work through doing work on myself first. Like I actually didn't know what floating was. I was doing work on programming and, and metaprogramming. Before that, I did work in shamanic work. Before that, I did like meditative work. I've done lots of different things, but I found that this work was really helpful. And then I got into floating. And when we opened up a float center, uh, I wanted to have some books here for people to read. And, and this is the version of programming and metaprogramming that John Louis wrote, but it's, it's not the complete edition. When I first started studying about programming and metaprogramming, I had a PDF file that I got off of a website called Scribed, and that was the original version. And in order to get the original and hard copy, you had to get like an old copy, like through Amazon, that was more expensive. And so the, 
the guys out in Flodon contacted the son of John Lilly, because John Lilly passed away, I'm not exactly sure when, maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, and they contacted his son, and they reached out to him to see if they could get the rights to this book, so that they could republish the original version. And so they did that about a year ago, and they told me about it, I thought that was really exciting, and then they're just now publishing it. And on May 15th, which is this week, they're going to be selling the book on Amazon.com. And so what they're doing is they're going around the country and going to float places and talking to people about the book in order to get people to buy the book because if they can get like a thousand people to purchase the book on the first day, then it can become a bestseller on Amazon. And that's a big thing. So then that would put the book like in a certain category, which would then increase the awareness of programming and metaprogramming. It would increase awareness of floating and so forth. So Ashkan had approached me about doing a book reading, but that didn't really excite me about doing a book reading. I just wasn't excited about that idea. But since we do the podcast here, I thought, you know, what would be interesting would be just do like a smaller group of people who are interested in like the deeper aspects of like floating or just kind of like being reflective or um, find iFloat really helpful in that regard in terms of looking at themselves and making adjustments and so forth. And so I thought we could invite a few people, we could read some sections of the book, but kind of discuss it or discuss their experiences here at iFloat, kind of do a combination of different things. And then in doing so, also talk about the fact that the book is being published and so forth. <laughs> Ashkan was supposed to be here like right now, but he had a schedule conflict and so he was here earlier and I did an interview with him just one-on-one -on -one, and he dropped off the, the swag here which is like the posters <laughs> and the, the book nice. uh, the, the bookmarks and the pins and so forth all of which people can take and then this also this little reading here and he left it because he had to actually go to New Jersey and then we're gonna now have a discussion It'll take maybe about, like, say, maybe 40 minutes or so. I want everybody to participate if you're comfortable. Uh, that would be really great. I don't exactly know how that's going to flow in terms of, like, you can chime in here, you can chime in there. But I did create, uh, and Anne was very nice to go and <laughs> make copies. Uh, we teach here a course on rewriting called the introduction to the art of rewriting and people usually take that course after they've floated here a few times and they're like oh you offer this course i'm really interested in, in making changes in my life and it's a two-day course and that is an introduction to what lily writes about here on programming and metaprogramming adjusting patterns in the mind then people do this course called a rewrite which is a one-on-one -on -one course where they go through early memories they identify a belief put in place early in life and they adjust it and that's one-on-one -on -one. I do that work and some other people I work with do that for people and some of the people who are here tonight are actually doing that work with me which is, which is cool and then we also offer a 10 to 12 week webinar course called programming theory and that is a deeper analysis of of this book it's basically taking excerpts out of the book discussing them applying them to one's life and that's usually for people who are either doing what we call the rewriter or have completed it and so forth. So what we're going to do tonight is 
Well, I pulled out some of the excerpts that we use in the course that we teach that come from this book, and we use it as a jumping off point to just have a discussion about what is, for example, the relevance of a flow center like iFlow in people's lives. And then within that, what is the relevance of having it be a float center where this material is, is not only available but applied in terms of understanding what goes on in our minds. And then at a deeper level, like how, what, what happens if we actually leverage it like in a class setting because some people have done that. And then what is, how does that relate to like the world in terms of like the people in our lives and, and what potential does that, does that have? You know, for people. So I think this is pretty cool. And, and, and the only reason I'm doing this event is because Ashton asked me and then I thought, well, I don't know if I want to do it that way, but let's do it this way. And I never would have thought of doing a podcast with like a bunch of people because all my podcasts have been one-on-one. <laughs> and then I just emailed Don, who was nice enough to set this up. And he thought, I think we can make that happen. We can do like a multi-person podcast. And so here we are doing a multi-person podcast. With a, a diverse group of group of people, and I think let me just get a chair. I think what would be helpful, just so that you all know who everybody else is, is just to go around the room very briefly and uh, talk about just very briefly, like your name and how you came to iFloat and a little bit about just like how it's affected you. I think that would be a good place to start. So whoever wants to start, go for it. Uh, I could start. Um, I came all the way from New Jersey. I've been... What's your name? Ken Kaplan. And I've been involved in uh, floating for over two years. And I've taken some of the courses, a lot of the courses that David uh, referenced uh, a few moments ago. And for me, uh, floating was really the first time that I began to be able to take kind of a glimpse at how I think and what's going on below the level of consciousness. And taught me to that kind of a revelation for me uh, as a lawyer that not everything, in fact, much of what goes on is below that level. Um, it's not, uh, it's not, you know, we're not just conscious uh, beings. There's so much more to us than that. Yeah, and I think just to interject there so that people can kind of break that down more, I think what you mean is that there's a part of our mind that we're aware of or conscious of and we think that that's all of who we are. Like that part of us that we talk to ourselves, like this is who I am, this is who I am. Right. But there's a lot more going on in us than we're aware of. In fact, most of what's going on in us is outside of our conscious awareness. And, uh, and Ken, I think, has had a lot of experiences to really show that, uh, even in the last week, uh, for example, I think, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that's... Yeah. And... Uh, so just to, I think as a starting off point, can somebody kind of jump from there in terms of maybe how coming here has maybe shown that to you, maybe sh share your name, in terms of like how, 
who we think we are might not be who we are. Anne? <laughs> Anne's like smiling. <laughs> Anne just came out of her fun session. So she's gonna, you know. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been coming here for about two and a half years. And I started coming here because I was studying to apply to law school. And I was very stressed. Because <laughs> I was working at the same time, full time. And, um, I mean, it was transformative the first session, but like here and after it's been just I I keep what, what, what we were just talking about it's it's like I see uh, I try to be like yeah this is what <laughs> sorry I was like but just the differences between what I think I know and then after talking to David about like after floating and I'll come out I'll be like so this is what I, I thought about, and David will be like, hmm, what's, what about this? We're not seeing it this way. Um, and having done the programming, the intro to rewrite was really eye-opening. Um, it, it really gives you tools to see how your mind is, I guess, processing things and um, opens, you know, opens uh, gives you uh, more opportunities to see how you're thinking about um, your perspective on life, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's helpful. And Tamara, you were going to chime in too, so do you, want to, do you want to share a little bit? Sure. Jump off from where Anne left off? Sure. Uh, my name's Tamara, and I've been floating for just a little bit over a year now. Um, a friend of mine introduced me to it. And I didn't take to it very well at first. Um, <laughs> Can you explain that a little because bit? Because I bumped up against a lot of things I wasn't ready to bump up against. Um, but it's definitely, for me, floating has helped me and David, the conversations afterwards, um, to really realize, you know, a lot of things about myself that I hadn't realized before. And that takes a lot of... Um, courage I think to accept and I think floating and conversations with people and the intro to rewrite um, have really helped me accept and and not only accept but okay well this is what I'm bumping up against this is what it means and now what do I have to do so that I can learn from it and change it adjust it and and grow um, and in particular for me, communication, I've learned. Like, I thought I was the greatest communicator and so open and new. <laughs> so it's really helped me with my relationships, um, with my whole family, with my parents, with my daughter, with my boyfriend, with my students. Um, sort of taking a step back and realizing things and changing. Right. <laughs> That's great. Well, actually, this is a great stepping off point because I extracted some <laughs> components or some parts of uh, Lily's book, Programming and Metaprogramming in a Human Biocomputer. And I'm just going to share the a portion of the first reading so you guys can read along if you'd like. It's, it, this is the, the excerpt. and It says, It is expected that this theory will be useful in understanding and in programming not only oneself but other minds as well. 
enhancement of the very human depths of communication with other minds may be approached. The current limits and the attainable limits for education, for reprogramming, for therapy, and for cooperative efforts, efforts of all sorts between men may be aided in the terms here presented. This is at least a hope of the author. Only time and use of this kind of thinking can test out the further working hypothesis. One fact which must be appreciated for applying this theory is the essential individual uniqueness of each of our minds, of each of our brains. It is no easy work to analyze either oneself or someone else. This theory is not, cannot be, a miracle key to a given human mind. It is devilishly hard work digging up enough of the basic facts and enough of the basic programs and metaprograms controlling each mind from within to change its poor operations into better ones. This theory can help one to sort out and arrange stored information and facts into more effective patterns for change. But the basic investigation of self or of other selves is not easy or fast. Our built-in prejudices, biases, repressions, and denials fight against understanding. Our unconscious automatically controls our behavior. Okay, so I'm going to stop right there, but I think that there is a section here that's, that's highlighted which just says that this theory is not, cannot be a miracle key to a given human mind. It is devilishly hard work. And what you just talked about, Tamara and, and Anne as well, was just the discomfort in a way, because sometimes when people float, they begin actually this process of, of doing that work, of looking at what is going on, what's going on in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it, it is hard, and, and, but it goes beyond the floating, and that's what, one of the things that makes iFloat unique is that our courses are experiential, where people are actually in the moment able to look at their, at their programming. And then also in sometimes conversations after a float session, what, I, what we do here at iFloat is help people see what is going on in their basic programs and meta programs. Because as Lily pointed out, our unconscious automatically controls our behavior and we can't see that ourselves. We cannot see what is going on in us unconsciously. And um, I'm going to ask, would you mind sharing a little bit, Erica, because you're relatively new to iFlow, and I think that your first session was kind of helpful, and you don't have to be specific about it, but just maybe a little bit about how it was helpful for you. Okay. Um, My name is Erica Hyatt. Um, I came here from New Milford, Connecticut. It's only been about, I would say, maybe five months since I've been going to iFlow. It's fairly new. Um, I came here kind of a mess. (laughs) Um, My mind was all over the place. I had never heard of any kind of programming or anything like this, so everything was extremely new. Um, I felt really comfortable here immediately, and going into the float tank um, was definitely an immediate, I guess, life changer in a way. Um, my perspective on everything changed, my perspective on people, um, on like my own personal things at home, like I, 
I've suffered with anger issues and things like that. And taking a step back, and David always says, like, really slow it down, that I never even thought to do that. <laughs> it's interesting because it's such an easy step in the right direction, but I, I definitely needed that little push that I got um, from iFloat. And I'm, I'm really happy to be here with a bunch of people that are in a similar mindset. <laughs> Yeah, I think that your point about slowing down is really important because it's when we slow down that we have the opportunity to look at our programming. And again, what we're, what we're talking about here is, is the, the parts of the mind, the, the neural programming that exists outside of our normal awareness, which is, which is most of it. And when we come to iFloat and we, opportunity, we have the opportunity to slow down and come out and talk about what's going on in our mind, that's our opportunity to see uh, what's there. And I'm going to just jump ahead to the next excerpt, which is reading number two, which is also, again, from John Lurie's book. He writes, In the province of the mind, what one believes to be true is true or becomes true, within certain limits to be found experientially and experimentally. These limits are further beliefs to be transcended. In the mind... There are no limits. I'm going to say that again. In the mind, there are no limits. And I'm going to stop right there because there was someone who came here today who talked about how he felt like he was traveling through space. And there was another psychologist here who also had just floated. And we were talking to him about how that is his imagination. And our imagination can take us all sorts of places, and, and it does. Uh, and that is both a good thing, but can also be a problem, because another word for imagination are fantasies or projections, which are patterns in our mind that we think are real, that we project out into reality that isn't necessarily real. Mike, maybe could you talk a little bit about that in terms of your experience uh, floating, taking the courses, and so forth? Sure. Uh, my name is Mike Seabrook. I'm from Plainville. I've been coming to iFloat for about a year and a half now. And uh, I was kind of just laughing to myself about this one because it's so true. Like, you, you know, floating gives you, uh, it gives you a lot. One of the things it does give you is this ability to see the wall that you kind of put up in, in yourself. And what's funny is, you can make that wall as large and impenetrable as you really want it to be. And that's a problem <laughs> when you're trying to make progress and be, um, you know, yeah, make changes, you know? So I just, you know, that really struck a nerve with me there. It's just, it's, it's funny how that is really so true. Yeah. I remember when you took the intro class, there was one point where it almost, it was almost as though something had been shattered because I think you realize that there's a lot more being communicated among people than you had ever thought before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you think you have a, a good sense of how the world works and like what's really going on. And then all of a sudden it's, it's like a little thread that's been bothering you anyways. And then, you know, David just... David pulls it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and and just to break this down a little bit for people who might be listening 
John Lilly said that the mind is structured into four main layers. And the first layer take form during the first three to four years of life, and they're what we could call beliefs about reality. Basic beliefs such as like wall is, walls are solid, fire is dangerous, very basic things. He referred to those as self-metaprograms because they, those beliefs form the foundation of the self, what we consider to be the self. And then from about ages like five to eight, we then form reactions based upon those beliefs. So again, if somebody comes at you with fire, you're probably going to either fight them or run away because you believe fire is, is dangerous, even if you've never been burned by fire. It is in fact dangerous, so it's appropriate for a person to react in that way. But what can happen is a person might have a belief formed early in life that also forms reactions, but they end up reacting to things as though someone's coming at them with fire, but maybe the person's just shaking their hand. <laughs> or maybe they're questioning them about something. <laughs> Mike's laughing. <laughs> okay, so that, that, that would really, you know, question someone, for example, believing that they're right, for example. And what Lily also said was that these reactions are called metaprograms. So the beliefs, beliefs control our reactions or self-metaprograms control metaprograms. And then he said later from about eight years to 12 years or so, people form programs. And then in the teenagers, we form logic. A lot of people think that logic is what controls everything, what drives everything. And our education system is largely focused on intellectual or logical development. But it's actually inverted. The beliefs, which are very deeply embedded in the unconscious mind, control our emotions or reactions. And the reactions control our feelings, and our feelings control our logic. And what we do here at iFloat is, in many ways, an educational experience for the other than conscious or unconscious mind. I'm very much a proponent of intellectual development, but what we're doing here and what Lily's talking about in this book is saying, there's a way to educate the unconscious mind so that we are reacting to things in, in external reality outside of our head in a way that actually matches that reality. I have a, um, it made me think of something that I butted up against, this need to be right, which became apparent after not too many floats and how it was something that I didn't, I didn't see, or maybe I didn't want to see, is a, another way to put it, uh, all the way up from that belief to the emotions of what that belief would generate when I felt like I was being challenged. Uh, uh, to the feelings and then to the logic, up to the logic, where I would give you a thousand reasons why I was right, never once even being able to get a glimpse to say, wait a second, where's this all coming from? <laughs> the other component to this idea that the mind has no limits is that people will often create as hard as they can realities, maybe find people who will agree with them, even agree with things that don't work as well. And when someone disagrees with them, they react and create logical reasons for why they don't like that person and so forth. Maybe uh, John Simonian, you could talk a little bit about that for you in terms of you know how starting to take these courses was in many ways an experience of, of, of something outside of your mind saying, 
you know, that doesn't work really well. Well, I could say that when I was a child, I formed certain beliefs. And I always, let's say, lived, for example, at home with my parents and other that my parents would reinforce my belief system. And what happened was I was always afraid to go out and to do things. And I became very isolated. Although I thought, you know, I was being a good son, taking care of my parents. And I, and I did help them. But the thing is, I was limiting myself in a, in a, in a given, you know, in a, in a given when I couldn't really slow up myself to think about myself that, you know, look, I'm afraid. It's because I'm afraid of going out of the house. Like at some point in my life, when I was young, I was afraid of going out. And I started doing things in my life to reinforce that belief from three years old. And I mean, I, and I, at some point I wrote a program. <laughs> it's just coming to my mind now as, as a person of 60, you know what I mean? And then as I, when my parents died, I finally realized, you know, when I was left to fend for myself, I finally realized, hey, you know, all this is really my imagination. It was my doing. Yeah, exactly. And that was only real inside of one's mind. And that's the thing. It's like... If somebody has something going on in their mind that isn't working well, it is real to them. It's real for them, but it just doesn't necessarily match mm-hmm. what's going on outside. And what happens in when a person floats, but also when a person takes the courses that we provide here, that there's an opportunity for them to have an exchange with a mind outside of their mind at the other than conscious level so that they can begin to understand what is going on in that part of the mind that isn't working well? And there often is going to be a disagreement because otherwise, if a person was looking for someone to agree with everything in their mind, that would be kind of a waste of time. But the point is, is to explore where, where are these, these limits that I'm imposing upon myself or I think there are no limits when in fact, when in fact there, are, there are limits. Because you know, just to use you as an example, John, you know, a person gets to a certain age where they have to stand on their own two feet. And, and if they're not done with being afraid of going outside and standing on their own two feet, that's really going to be difficult for them to operate and navigate the world, have intimate relationships and things like that. I'm just going to continue with this a little bit more. What Lily says, he says, he says, in the province of the mind is the region of one's models, of the alone self, of memory, of the metaprograms. What of the region which includes one's body, other's body? Here there are definite limits. In the network of bodies, one's own connected with others for bodily survival, procreation, creation, there is another kind of information. In the province of connected minds, what the network believes to be true either is true or becomes true within certain limits to be found experientially and experimentally. These limits are further beliefs to be transcended. In the network's mind, there are no limits, but once again, the bodies of the network housing the minds, the ground on which they rest, the planet's surface, impose definite limits. These limits are to be found experientially and experimentally, agreed upon by special minds and communicated to the network. The results are called consensus science. Lily likes to break things down in a particular way, which sometimes at a first read can be a little bit difficult to understand. But essentially what he's saying is that there's a consensus reality. For example, we all agree to stop at red lights. If 
500 years ago, that was not consensus reality. It is now. That's just one example. And we also use credit cards. 500 years ago, that was not part of consensus reality. But there are other things of consensus reality, like respect for one another. That's another example of people saying, okay, this is how we're gonna, we're gonna be. But what happens is, when a person has programming that doesn't work well, they bump up against consensus reality. And eventually, they get to a point where they're frustrated about bumping up against consensus reality. I'm wondering if somebody can give an example, maybe someone hasn't spoken yet, about how they got to a point where they saw that they were bumping up against something. They might not have understood what it was, but that they did. Anybody have something to share about that? Anybody? Or maybe someone hasn't spoken yet. Okay, well, John, Can I add one thing because it's the thought that comes to my mind right now. I remember as a youngster, up until three years of age, I was given all the attention by my mother. And I mean all the attention or treated, you know, and got everything I wanted. And then my mother had my brother. And then a few months after that, she became mentally ill. And then I was basically shunted off to another home and whatever. And the thing is, I was no longer, um, how should I say, the center of attention. And like my mother gave to me and always in my mind I try to strive you know for that kind of attention to be the number one and that always operated in my mind I didn't realize it even until 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 very recently and you know that's just not a real thing you know trying to be number one or trying to be the thing you know where your mother gave you all the attention at three John talk about your experience with doing the rewrite because you took the introduction to the rewrite class and then you've taken the rewrite one-on-one -on -one work where you, you've worked on identifying something you believed in and adjusting it, but how has that process helped you realize that or change that? Well, it took me, you know, from the rewrite class, I did the rewrite class, and the first thing was to identify a belief. That took me several months, and that took me in itself several months, and basically the belief was that I was important, that like I was the number one. And then, the real, then we had to do what was the countermandable if and I went through a whole series for several months of exchanges essentially and what it boils down to was that what came out to me my goal was to be communication because I had so isolated myself in my whole thinking sphere that I was special and that everything had to come to me I forgot or I didn't want to realize that I have to reach out to people and that communication was the goal I mean, I did everything else, but it took me several months, but I also learned about how I put into place from the time I was five, a whole series of evasions, not to face that. And that's one of the things that John Lilly talks about. He talks about in this book about evasions and how people will create all sorts of evasions to not deal with what's going on. And one of the classical ones that I deal with here at iFloat is claustrophobia. People will bring up, well, what about claustrophobia? How can I float if I'm claustrophobic? And I always remind people when I show it to them that they can open the door at any time. And also that they can even keep the door open a little bit. 
But what I often remind people is that it's usually less about claustrophobia, especially since you can open the door anytime. It has a lot more to do with control. And it has a lot more to do with resisting, slowing down, and looking at what's really going on. Because if we actually start to look at what's going on in our mind, and we see what's really going on, it's a little bit difficult to not change it, right? I mean, if we really see it, and it's been like tossed out maybe in front of other people, then we can't evade it anymore. And when we slow down in the float, and people, and they know that they're gonna, they're going to. And so that's really what a lot of the claustrophobia is about. It's, it's an evasion of trying to like hold on to how things are. And there are lots of evasions and it's just a matter of slowing down and starting, starting to work through them. Um, I'm going to turn to Michael. What is inspiring you to study this work? Because you'll be taking uh, mm. class soon. Um, well, well, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I, I have this thing I call uh, head trash, and it's my pet name for the conscious mind just spinning stuff out all the time, you know, constantly giving stuff and ideas and more stuff and everything else. And just, I've always been attracted to things that offer another perspective. And floating has just been a, a real nice uh, new experience for me. A real nice, real nice experience. And uh, if we move on to the next reading, conveniently it's about evasions. <laughs> and I didn't plan that, it just, <laughs> things, things happen that way. But I'm going to read what Lily writes about evasions. He writes, In using the term evasion, it is meant to imply a similar concept to defensive maneuvers or defenses of the psychoanalytic literature. However, in addition to the contents of these concepts, evasion is defined as any program or metaprogram entered upon to avoid, to hide, or to distort a deeper program or metaprogram which is too seductive or too threatening or too chaotic for the self-programmer at that particular time. And Robert, I'm going to turn to you because you came out feeling much lighter yeah. from your float just now. And I think you've been dealing a little bit with this right here because you're working on, on, on a rewrite. And can you talk a little bit about this process of, of you actually slowing down enough to look at what's going on? or? Or what that's been like for you so far? So I've been floating for about a year and a half. I took that intro class last year and started on the rewrite myself and came on today's float feeling about 10 times lighter knowing that I would be, I would be fine if I made a mistake. Always trying to be perfect. If I made a mistake, I'd be judged, I'd be ridiculed and just kind of feeling that during today's float felt great. And what has it been like, this process of communicating back and forth in terms of looking at your memories and yeah. looking at your beliefs? What, what, what has that been like for you? Because my sense is it hasn't been quite all that easy. I know, it's, it's probably the toughest work that I've had to do. We're really peeling off layer after layer, really getting deep down into yourself and what's going on. And uh, it's been great though. And just out of curiosity, what inspired you or motivated you to do it? To, to actually start to do this work. So I'm a physical therapist and I just do working with the body was only half of what I needed to do. That I need to really be able to change the patient's mind to get a full change as far as making them feel better. That's a really good point because there's a really strong connection between patterns in the mind and patterns in the body. 
In fact, I was talking to someone here earlier today who was telling me that they had a strep throat in the last, two strep throat cases in the last month or two. And, and uh, they're about, uh, probably in their, about 30 years old. And one of the things I just pointed out was that Lily said that the neck region is the region of needs because that's where we take in our air, our food, and our water. And I said, maybe, perhaps, there is something that you need to do that you're not doing or something you need not do that you are doing and that that could be resulting in tension in this area of needs in your neck. And that was an opening uh, for him to look at something that appeared to be a big thing for him. And having him come into flow slowed him down enough to be able to, to look at that. In many ways, floating is a way to stop evading being who we really are. Being at one with ourselves and then being in harmony with others. I'm going to continue reading because this next paragraph actually is a great segue. Lily writes, at the beginning in the profound isolation situation, many people experience a fear, which is an almost disembodied fear with no reference to in the external reality. With experience, this fear can be shown to be a fear of one's own inner unknowns. After a thorough exploration of the various evasive metaprograms, it can be shown that the only thing to fear in this area is fear itself in overwhelming amounts. With sufficient training, it can be shown that one can convert the motivational sign of the experienced emotion from negative to positive. As to whether or not one must go through some of the negative emoting in order to experience enough of the punishing aspects to avoid them is a moot point. A great deal of self-discipline is required in this instance to pursue the negatively tinged programs and metaprograms stored in memory. At times, one can detect an almost hedonistic withdrawal from further consideration of unpleasant events and memories. And what he's saying here is that we can take any quote-unquote negative emotion as an opportunity to go deeper within ourselves and explore what's really going on. And he's saying that what we consider to be a negative experience if we've explored it, if we adjust those that programming in us, it can change. And what happens at times is that people will, when they begin to do inner work, they sometimes will go in the opposite direction and, and do anything they can to only experience pleasure so that they don't actually have to deal with it. I was speaking with someone recently who plans on taking our next introduction to the art of rewriting. And he said that every time in the past, he has gotten to a point where he has actually had to start to deal with what he believes to be real. It becomes uncomfortable and he stops doing the work. Hmm. And he's starting to see that now, that that has been a pattern for him. But what he is also seeing is that that has kept it in place. Nothing has changed. And what we offer here and what John Lilly is writing about in this book is that it's not going to necessarily be pleasant 
when we are doing this work. In fact, it's unlikely that it will be. But the act of crossing through that, through that threshold of unpleasantness can result in us making adjustments that work a lot better. Yeah, you just gotta hang with mm -hmm. it. You gotta hang with that uncomfortableness there. Can you explain that a little bit more in terms of your own experience? Well, it's just funny that that paragraph's there because you know I was in the flip there and I've been going through the rewrite and this one particular in the rewrite has been giving me some trouble. And so I was playing with some different ideas for what to use for the programming statement. And I noticed immediately that I, I, as I was saying this to myself, what I want to go with, I experienced like a, a great level of discomfort and then immediately went in, my mind went somewhere else. And so I just kept forcing it to go back and said, no, no, we gotta, we gotta hang here. And it's funny, it's sort of like just, uh, it's intense, but it will dissolve is what I noticed there. And that was one of the first times that that had happened for me is when I was just hanging out in that, in that space, in that, in that discomfort. Just out of curiosity, how has that affected your, your relationship? Your... Well, I mean, it, it, it helps me in the sense that there's a, when it comes to relations with people, there's a lot of stuff that's probably going to be uncomfortable. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not to be addressed. It usually means it needs to be addressed. Um, and so if, if, you know, I, if I keep going the same pattern of not addressing these things ever, that are unpleasant, uh, it doesn't make my relationship any better. So, you know, it, it just has shown me that it's unpleasant, but necessary stuff that has to be done, and you push through it, and that's how you make a, a better relationship and ultimately a better, a better life. And did you want to chime in on that as well? Um, I, um, I guess so. <laughs> um, in terms of how um, that floating has changed relationships and and communication, um, I'm I'm doing the rewrite now, and I will say that floating has become more uncomfortable now that I'm in like dealing with things that are um, not working well for me and I go in and I float and I, I too notice that I start looking at things and then all of a sudden I'm thinking about plans next weekend <laughs> and not addressing what I should, like I went in to like, try to work on something and I um, easily get, easily allow myself to get distracted and not address what, but it takes perseverance and you know, work, I guess, to to really get down and, um, and and figure things out and work on it. But it it's worth it, you know. One of the things that I that you talked about was a conversation that you had with someone who you've known for a while, and all of a sudden the conversation became much more intimate, like like actually talking about things that were much more real, right? Yeah. And that was something that was really different for you. Yeah. Um, I, I met up with um, my old boss and it was just, I guess our conversation was just, uh, it was different and, and I, part of it was that I'm not an employee anymore, but it was also, and David, I've pointed this out, it was just like, I guess because I've been doing work and, and he just felt more comfortable asking things that were, I guess, you know, they were pertinent, but. It was it was interesting. It was, I, it made me uncomfortable a little bit because I was like, "Whoa, uh, 
But it, not in a bad way, but it, it was just different. It was much different. It was much more intimate, which you're not accustomed to. Yeah. And one of the things that gets hammered away in the introduction to the art of rewriting and the rewrite and the program theory class that we do is that like 90% of what we're communicating, what we're transmitting to other people is not spoken. It's nonverbal. It's feelings, it's emotions, it's beliefs. And so if all of a sudden Anne's having a conversation with someone she's known for a long time, it's becoming much more real, like actually talking about what's really going on in their life. That's probably because that she's communicating, she's transmitting something different. She's not uh, transmitting uh, maybe a push away. It's more of like this, oh, okay, I, I'm actually interested in having real conversations. But then that conscious part of her mind is like, what's going on? This is really weird. And so there's this, there's this push and pull that happens there. But see, part of what happens as a full facilitator and somebody who teaches this work is that I often am not paying attention to what people are saying. I'm paying attention to what people are transmitting unconsciously. And so while Anne was telling me that story, what I was seeing was, was something very different than, than her discomfort. I was seeing somebody who was actually having more, more of an intimate communication uh, with someone, uh, which, is, which is great. And that's, that's really important. In the courses that we do here, there's the, there's the introduction to the rewrite, which is a two-day course. There's the rewrite, which is a one-on-one -on -one experience done over email. And then there's this 10 to 12 week webinar course called Program Theory and Application. And, and that's a place where people also have the opportunity to really break down this book and to understand what actually is going on in this book and how does it apply to me and how can I leverage that uh, in, in my life. And I think I'm just gonna go over one more reading and uh, we might wrap up there that people can chime in. And in this, this section, John Lilly's talking about the definition of what he calls a general purpose self-meta program. And he writes this, the essential features and the goals sought in the self-analysis are in the meta program. Make the computer general purpose. In this sense, we mean that in the general purpose nature of the computer, there can be no display. No acting, nor an ideal which is forbidden to a consciously willed meta program. Nor is any display, acting, or ideal made without being consciously meta programmed. In each case, of course, one is up against the limits of the unique computer which is one's own. There are certain kinds of meta programs, displays, acting, or ideals which are beyond the capacity of a particular computer. However, one's imagined limits are sometimes smaller than those which can be achieved with special work. The metaprogram of the specific beliefs about the limits of oneself are at stake here. One's ability to achieve certain special states of consciousness, for example, are generally pre-programmed by basic beliefs taken on in childhood. If the computer is to be maintained, or to maintain its general purpose nature, which presumably was there in childhood, one must recapture a far greater range of phenomena than one expects that one has available. For instance, one should be able to program in practically any area possible within human imagination, human action, or human being. This idea of, of becoming a general purpose computer is what Lily's saying that children have that ability before they put any beliefs in that never worked right. They are very flexible and very pliable and 
and so forth. And Kent, I'm curious how you see this idea of general purpose because you've been taking the program theory class and we've been discussing that. How does that, how do you see that applying to your life? I see as um, I face up against the programs uh, that I wrote as a little kid uh, and recognize that they're there and then address them. It's like, you know, it's like a weight, like each one is like a weight. Like I sometimes think they're like chains on my back. That's how I come to sometimes think about it. I've been running around like with these chains as if they're supposed to be there, but then as they peel away, uh, there's more freedom, there's more energy, there's more, well, circuitry uh, left to do other things. So with each one of these things, these adjustments that I make, uh, it, you know, um, for me has a, uh, a, you know, an energetic relationship to it. So the more I free up, the more I can do things. And I think that's what Lily is talking about, about being general purpose. I want to move over to our tattoo artist friend, John, here, because John, I want you to explain a little bit about this idea from the point of view of a tattoo artist because you probably get a pretty wide range of people coming in just in terms of personalities and so forth. Yeah. And what Lily's talking about here is that we really have to be like somebody who can kind of move and shift as needed for the situation. How do you see that applying to you as a tattoo artist? Because it seems like it's an important thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's a lot like... Uh... People talk about their barber or their hairstyles, but you really get to know that person. <laughs> like, you think of that, I do projects that are probably updated, like, at the longest, maybe eight hours. You know, so I, I get to spend a whole day with somebody. So we get to, you know, we do the barber thing, but all day. <laughs> we eat lunch together, and, we, you know, I really get to know people. And, and, and you get to know them in a weird state, because they're kind of, you know, they're vulnerable. They're getting tattooed by somebody, they're getting hurt, and um, there's a lot going on there. But they kind of really open up. I get to get to really kind of get to know people on a different level. That's really cool. And um, that's like the, the weirdest thing with floating is that, to me how social of a thing it is. Because do you think it's such a uh, isolated thing? Because you're gonna go by yourself and float for a while. You know, I I, I wanted to like meditate. I thought it was like, oh, I'm gonna be by myself in this like peaceful place. And when I'm floating, all I think about is all the people that I meet and like you know, the really relationships that I have. And, um, I think that's really, really cool. Um, I'm kind of going, I'm backtracking now that I'm going to the... No, that's... The idea of that network kind of thinking, you know, it's, it's really kind of funny. That's um, what he means by that is that by being a general purpose biocomputer, that we are then in... We're, we're meant to be a general purpose biocomputer, and what's real is we are connected to other minds. Yeah. And when we float, we have no choice but to recognize that we are connected and to put energy into uh, freeing up that connection, expanding that connection, and making it, there be more flow. Right. That's, uh... It's just, it just is. That flow is there whether we want to resist it or not. Yeah. And when we float, we can't resist it. And I think I'm just going to jump ahead to this last reading because what you said is appropriate for this last reading, or at least parts of it. And Lily writes this, he says, with this caution, let us return to the profound isolation situation. In the zero-level external reality situation, the use of any external reality screen can be defined as a defensive maneuver to avoid visualizing or experiencing what one fears most in the deeper levels of one's computer, 
i.e. in the unconscious. The uses of the screens are necessary and useful steps on the way in and are useful steps to return to for confirmation at later times of the findings. An apparently paradoxical situation thus exists in the profound physical isolation situation. One is pursuing self-analysis and accesses to the keys to pleasure within oneself and keys to lessening the pain and fear in oneself. However, once one has unlocked the pleasure and attenuated the pain, one must use the resulting released energies and attach them somehow to the external reality programs and the ideals super-self metaprograms which one has set up. And I think that this is an important point and it completely flows from what you were saying, which is that when we flow, we're dealing with ourselves. We're dealing with the programming in our mind. When we do a rewrite, we are having the opportunity to communicate with another person and make these adjustments. And when we start to make adjustments within ourselves, what happens is there's a release of energy. There's all of a sudden this energy that we put into, for example, isolating ourselves or being right or believing we're alone. That takes up a lot of energy. And when we adjust it, the energy then wants to go out into the world. And then we have the opportunity to increase that flow, whether it's in like an intimate relationship or it's in our work relationships uh, with children, with parents, with all sorts of people, because that is what, what we're meant to be. We are meant to be minds that are at one and our general purpose so that whatever energy is flowing through the mind goes out through our hands and in our feet and in our emotions so that we are filling that place in the world that we're meant to fit. Because everybody here sitting around this table is fitting a different slot in the world. And the more we can slow down, the more we can apply programming and actually make those adjustments in our mind, the easier it is to fill that slot and to be uh, a source of of inspiration, a source of, of, of change uh, in the, the places where we, we are active in our families, at work, and so forth. Um, I think I'm going to stop it here, but I just wanted to know if there's anybody else who has something that they, they want to share, either about their experiences here or about their experiences on the courses or anything like that. It looks like looks like that's it. Well, I really want to thank everyone for coming because I think this is a special event, and I'm not even entirely sure why, but I can just sense that it is. It's just it, there's just there's just this uh, sense of depth to this exchange that we're having, and who knows who's going to listen or how this is going to affect people. But on behalf of myself, uh, thank you for for being here tonight, and I want to thank the people from Float On for publishing programming and metaprogramming in the human biocomputer. And I want to encourage the people here and the people listening to go to the, the website uh, and purchase the book. And the website for this is uh, coincidencebooks.com. So that's uh, C-O-I-N-C-I-D-E-N-C-E books.com. And I really encourage you to purchase this book on May 15th, 
and purchase some copies for your friends so that the folks that float on can, can make this book successful and known and we can increase awareness of float centers, we can increase awareness of, of floating. And if people are interested in taking our courses, the Introduction to the Art of Rewriting is, a, is offered through webinar. It's a two-day webinar, so it can, you can take it at iFloat, you can take it from home at other places as well, and you can find out more about the courses that we offer in, in rewriting and programming and metaprogramming and other courses at our website, which is www.ifloatspa.net. Again, that's www.ifloatspa.net. And you can also send us an email from there as well. So thank you folks for listening and thank you folks for being here tonight and have a wonderful day, evening, week. Thank you. Suspended DSCT.TV production.